I V M. Welcome to States of Anarchy. My name is Hamsini Hariharan, and every week on the show, I discuss themes in global affairs and foreign policy, all in the hope of making a little more sense of the world around us. Today, we're going back to taking some listener questions. We have two that we got on Instagram from Malvika and Tarun after one of our foreign policy Friday quizzes. Speaking of which, if you're on Instagram, check out at States of Anarchy. Every Friday, we post a mini quiz on the handle to test your knowledge of the world. Now getting to our episode. Our first question today comes from Malvika. She asks, what is the theory of realism? Thank you, Malvika, for your question. On States of Anarchy, I normally talk about the practical side of international relations or IR. This question deals with a theoretical aspect. IR has a rich trove of theories and theoretical concepts that help us understand, categorize and explain current affairs. Now, realism is one of the oldest theories of international relations, and possibly its most popular. In fact, realism possibly even existed as an idea before IR became an independent discipline. I'll tell you what I mean by that. Realism focuses on the conflictual side of international politics. Like most IR theories, realism assumes the state is the primary actor in international relations. The priority for this state is its national interest, and survival is its best national interest. The state tries to secure its survival by increasing its power. That's why realists keep talking about how power is currency on the international stage. Some even call realism the might is right theory. Realism contrasts the national and international scenario. Inside of a nation, you have the police, firefighters, and the army to respond to emergencies and threats. There's a government to guide and direct emergency efforts. But on the international stage, there really isn't anyone you can call on. No higher infrastructure or authority to rush to. And this is what realism calls anarchy. While there isn't chaos, there is no one to turn to for help. Now, imagine this example without all the technical jargons. Realism imagines the world to be a one-hour lunch break in sixth grade. There's no teacher or authority nearby in the classroom. That doesn't mean there's absolute chaos, but just that if you fall from the bench and get hurt, there isn't an adult present to help. There isn't a teacher to intervene if the class bully decides he likes your lunch and snatches it from you. Now imagine your lunch, which in this case is your security, is your first priority. To protect the lunch, all you can do is depend on yourself or the slight off chance that it was a busy morning for your parents to whip up something delicious. So what do you do in this situation? You basically try to improve the odds of protecting your lunch. You can choose to sit in groups to find strength in numbers and deter the bully. Fun fact, this is actually called collective security in international relations. Nations come together to pool in their resources and enhance security measures against an enemy. A real-life example of this is the NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was formed to protect Western Europe against any prospective Soviet aggression. Now, back to the example. It's recess, you're trying to protect your lunch. If you don't have a group or your friends haven't turned up today, what do you do? You can try to deter the bully by standing up to them. Maybe you're confident and can make them back down. Or you know an embarrassing secret of the bully that you leverage. Or maybe you trade your Pokemon cards with the bully to get on their good side and out of their target list. Maybe you decide to do nothing but complain to the teacher after the lunch break. 
this way is according to the rules, but it won't save your lunch or promise any concrete action against the bully. It might not even ensure that it won't happen again. This is what realism believes the world to be. You can only depend on yourself to save your lunch from any threat. And that's why realism stretches on acquisition, maintenance, and maximization of power. Scholars often identify the earliest strands of realism in the Greek writings of Thucydides about the Peloponnesian War. There's this concept called the balance of power, which explains how states amass power to achieve parity with their opponents. Works of non-Western thinkers like Sun Tzu and Kautilya are also considered today as seminal works on realism. Later thinkers like Hobbes and Machiavelli in the Western world further explored realism in the Leviathan and the Prince. In the modern era, after World War II, during the emergence of international relations as a discipline, writers like E.H. Carr and Hans Morgenthau gave the shape and a distinct identity to the ideas of realism. Morgenthau, who is also known as the father of realism, first outlined his ideas in his book called The Politics Among Nations. This version of realism is called classical realism. Morgenthau attributed conflict and violence in international politics to the greed and ego of human nature. That's why realism is called the way it is. Because it claims to lay down a real picture of international politics, not the one that is tainted by naive idealism, but the one that's marked by blood and betrayal and conflict. Classical realism often resorted to using history as an example to showcase tales of human conquest and desire. We can also see the influence of context. For example, the two global and devastating wars on the works of E.H. Carr and Morgenthau. Classical realism was updated in the 1970s and 80s, most notably by a man called Kenneth Waltz, who wrote a book called Man, State and War. Now, this gave to ideas of neorealism. Now, neorealism agreed with a lot of what classical realism said. You know, it said, yes, the importance of survival is by maximization of power. The only major difference is that it attributed conflicts to the structure of the world rather than something intangible like human nature. Now, remember the classroom example. The difference between realists and neorealists is who to blame for the threat to your lunch. Realists will say it's the bully's human nature. He's a terrible person, which is what incentivizes him to steal your lunch. Neorealists, on the other hand, blame the lack of teachers or anyone in charge. They would argue that it is lucrative to steal a lunch, especially when you might not get caught and there won't be any consequences. Realism, due to its simple yet effective reasoning about the working of the world, has become extremely popular in debates about international relations. Despite the emergence of new theories in IR, like postmodernism or constructivism or feminism, realism has not lost its impact and still continues to drive contemporary debates. Even this podcast, The States of Anarchy, takes its name from a realist conception of the world, that the world system is anarchical, and here states must do what they need to to survive. It's rather bleak, I know, but I'm at least glad to have the chance to explain it to you. Now, on to our second question. Taron on Instagram asks, can you please elaborate what a pawn in a proxy war is? Thank you so much for your question, Tarun. Talk about pawns and proxy wars. We obviously have to go back to the Cold War. Most people think of the Cold War as only between US and Russia, but there were actually a lot of third world countries involved. And these countries are often referred to as pawns. 
Now, the Cold War is one of the most historic moments in international relations and world history. After World War II, the dynamic of the Cold War was very different from outright traditional war. If you didn't know, the Cold War lasted between 1945 and 1991 between the US and the USSR, along with their respective allies. Instead of military warfare, the Cold War was waged on political, economic, and most importantly, ideological fronts. It was a war of ideologies between the capitalists, headed by the US, and the communists, which were the Soviets. So what exactly triggered the Cold War? We'll have to go back a little further. Nazi Germany was taken down by the Allies in May 1945. So post-World War II, the fragile alliances on both sides started to waver. By 1948, the Soviets had succeeded in establishing left-wing governments in a number of East European countries like Poland and Hungary and others. The US and Britain were scared that the Soviets would spread their communist ideology to Western Europe. So the US decided to intervene by providing aid to Western Europe through its Marshall Plan. Now, this move effectively brought them under the American umbrella. By 1947-48, the Soviets had also established openly communist regimes in Eastern Europe, and the Cold War begins in earnest. Now that we've seen the backdrop of the Cold War, let's talk about these so-called pawns and proxy wars. I read a very insightful Brookings report titled Why Engage in Proxy War, A State's Perspective, which outlines just that in great detail. According to this report, and I quote, A proxy war occurs when a major power instigates or plays a major role in supporting and directing a party to a conflict, but does only a small portion of the actual fighting itself. Stop quote. How is this any different from a traditional war or alliance? Well, in a war, states are responsible for their own defense and offense. Maybe in an alliance, both the major and the minor powers contribute to a partnership in varying degrees according to their own means. Remember, we spoke about the earlier question about collective security? Well, that plays out here as well. For example, the USA's intervention in Afghanistan against the Taliban is more of a traditional alliance. This is because the US military is also actively involved with boots on ground and through airstrikes and others. On the other hand, Iran supporting Yemen's Houthi rebels is more of a proxy war, since Iran isn't volunteering its own troops. It's merely providing weapons and funding to the Houthi group. Now, you might be wondering, why wage a proxy war at all? What's in it for the state and the proxy? This question has a number of answers. The most common one is war costs. And this is not just in terms of money, but also manpower. In a proxy war, locals sacrifice their soldiers, while the patron state gets to watch from the comfort of their homes. But they still get bragging rights for liberating a nation, so as to say. From a strategic perspective, locals are more readily accepted by the communities they're fighting for, thus avoiding a savior complex. Locals are also better at gleaning intelligence. They know their terrain much better than any foreigners. Also, not every state has the power projection capacity of the U.S., so they're forced to engage in proxy wars instead to exert influence across borders. Apart from strategic reasons, proxy wars are also a means of advancing ideology. What I mean by that is that states would often support a proxy that is an ideological soulmate. The Brookings report that I quoted earlier says another reason for backing a proxy is to enhance the state's leadership credibility. 
So, for example, the Arabs supported Palestinian leaders, despite their differences, to boost their credibility in their domestic sphere. Now, proxy wars are excellent excuses for countries to have plausible deniability, which means they can lie easier. If a state isn't explicitly vocal about backing a proxy, then they can just deny any interference and choose to keep quiet in a volatile situation. This just gives the state a chance to fulfill its goals without having to commit to them explicitly and pulling out the big guns. Of course, it can't all be good. Proxy warfare brings a number of risks. Despite the imbalanced power dynamic, proxies always act in their own interests, even if that goes against the sponsor state's orders. And that's quite natural. But this independence obviously creates tensions between the proxy and the patron. Sponsor states often prefer stronger proxies, but with that comes the risk of proxies being rebellious and independent. This could also lead to the patron being dragged into unwanted conflict on behalf of its proxy. In this situation, proxies often act recklessly with the knowledge that they have a major power backing them. Look at the Palestinian conflict with Israel, for example. Palestine launched many cross-border raids, which escalated into the famous Middle East border wars. And Palestine's patrons, the Arabs, were forced to support Palestine through it all. Of course, there's also a matter of war expenses. Proxy wars are heavy investments, and they create a huge dent in a sponsor's finances. An example of this is Iran. Iran has been accused of being one of the leading sponsors of proxy wars in West Asia. Iran's sponsorship isn't just limited to financing, but includes training and arming proxy groups. And this might be cheaper than waging an all-out conventional war in the region. But proxy wars still aren't the cheapest option. They guzzle money to pay and train fighters. Iran's economy also faces a strain today, not just because of numerous sanctions, but also because a lot of money is being absorbed by proxies. The longer the proxy war lasts, the more it burdens the patron's economy. Not to mention, the perfect proxy is a myth. To quote that Brookings report, proxies are often corrupt, brutal, and incompetent. Stop quote. Many proxies could take sponsorship for granted and offer nothing in return, like a college fest. The proxy's unchecked brutality also reflects badly on the sponsor state. Moreover, once a state makes the leap of backing a proxy and supporting its cause, the vested interest only keeps increasing. Often, this is a sunk cost. As you can imagine, it makes it very difficult for the state to pull out when it wants to. The US's intervention in Vietnam obviously comes to mind. The massive war expenses could no longer justify the US continuing to fight in Vietnam. The American public and media were also very vocal about being anti-war. But the US struggled so much to end the war that Kennedy even had to pull out of the race for his second presidential term because he failed to pull out of Vietnam. The US continued their involvement for six years after that. Now that brings us to why proxies accept sponsorship and they become pawns in a sense. The biggest reason is resources. Proxies are often small, third world countries that lack the money, weapons and the training to fight for their causes. This is where sponsor states step in. Apart from massive military support associated with proxy wars, patrons can provide a place for leadership of the proxies to regroup and strategize. Foreign backing also legitimizes the local leader's group, as well as the cause that they're fighting for. But proxies should be wary of accepting foreign support and sponsorship. Sponsors will obviously do everything in their means to impose limits and keep the proxy in check. 
If at any point in time, the goal of the sponsors and the proxies start diverging, states don't hesitate to abandon proxies or even back its rivals. A different Brookings report I read summarizes this perfectly. It says, and I quote, support is often an alliance of convenience, not a close relationship. Stop quote. So both the sponsors and proxies should enter this agreement with a lot of caution, keeping in mind the consequences that will follow. If you remember at the beginning, we defined proxy wars not having much direct military support from the sponsors. Interestingly, the wars classified as proxy wars during the Cold War saw heavy military contributions from the US and the Soviet Union. Well, with that, we come to the end of this episode of States of Anarchy. Thank you for staying with us. I've attached a set of readings if you want to know more about realism or proxy wars. If you have any follow-up questions, just send them across to me and I'll answer them on the podcast. You can email me at ivmstatesofanarchy at gmail.com or on Instagram at statesofanarchy or on Twitter where my handle is at humsaneh. This episode was scripted with the help of my wonderful interns, Vinny Padavkar and Ayushmita Bhattacharjee. If you want to get involved with States of Anarchy, we'd really appreciate your help in reaching new people. You can send this episode to someone who may enjoy it or leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. You can listen to States of Anarchy on any podcast app you use, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, CastBox or whatever you're using right now. We'll be back next week.